I will continue reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll pick up in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vapor. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vapor and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vapor. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vapor and grasping for the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us your truth, your wisdom, that we might see your son set before us, the light of the nations, the good shepherd who has come to lay down his life for our sake, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Help us to enter more fully and faithfully into this abundant life. Christ has won for us. This we pray in His name. Amen. Why are superhero movies so popular? I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but uh, one is that I think we'd all like to have superpowers ourselves. To have Superman's strength and his ability to fly, or to have Spider-Man's quickness and agility, uh, to have... Batman's intelligence and his gadgets. We think that these kinds of powers could give us the control that we crave. If only we could control our lives. If only we could comprehend our lives. Then we would be happy. Sometimes I think we Christians tend to think of wisdom as a kind of superpower. Yeah, if you had, if you have wisdom, you have special insight into what God is doing in the world and in your life. And that knowledge will give you a kind of power, a a kind of control over your life. On this particular view of wisdom, wisdom as a superpower, wisdom gives us a kind of bird's eye view of the world so we can see what's really going on in the world all around us. Wisdom becomes like a map or a key to give us control over reality that gives us power to understand what's going on. Uh, Jeff Myers says that on this view, wisdom is like being in the air traffic control tower at the airport. And in the air traffic control tower, you can see the lay of the land, and you can see where all the different planes are going. You can track them. You can know what's going on. You can even tell the planes where to go. You can comprehend the situation, and you can control the situation. And that's how we tend to think of wisdom, comprehension, and control. Wisdom brings knowledge, and that knowledge is power. 
And so wisdom really gives us the kind of how-to part of life. It gives us the techniques that we need to guarantee ourselves a successful and happy outcome in different areas of life. We think of wisdom as kind of like a Google Maps app for life. If you have wisdom, you're always going to know the best way to get from point A to point B in life. You're going to know where all the traffic jams are. You're going to know the shortcuts. That's how wisdom works. That's how we tend to think of wisdom, a kind of superpower. Proverbs might even give us the impression that wisdom works this way. It's clear in the book of Proverbs that wisdom is the art of living skillfully. And it's also clear from the book of Proverbs that those who live skillfully will get results. And so you could read Proverbs and get the idea that wisdom is really a set of life hacks that sort of make all of life go easy. But Solomon not only gave us Proverbs, he supplemented Proverbs with Ecclesiastes so we would not get the wrong idea about what wisdom is and how wisdom works. He wants us to have the full picture of what wisdom is and what wisdom can and cannot do. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes need to be set side by side. Proverbs makes life look pretty simple. Do A and B usually follows. Do C and D will usually happen. There's this moral cause and effect in the universe. Proverbs shows us those kinds of patterns. And they're true. That, 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 that moral cause and effect is a reality. It's part of God's world, part of God's providence. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that reality is actually a little more complicated than that. It's often fuzzier and more complex, more mysterious than that. Proverbs is all about the benefits of wisdom, a lesson you need to learn when you're young, that wisdom is good, wisdom is advantageous, there are benefits in wisdom. Ecclesiastes is all about the limits of wisdom, which you are faced with increasingly as you get older. You can live skillfully, you can live a life of wisdom, and actually end up without a whole lot to show for it. G.K. Chesterton describes it this way, and I think it's it's good, uh, at bringing Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together. Chesterton says this, The real trouble with this world of ours is not that it is an unreasonable world, nor even that it is a reasonable one. The commonest kind of trouble is that it is nearly reasonable, but not quite. Life is not illogical, yet it is a trap for logicians. It looks just a little more mathematical and regular than it is. Its exactitude is obvious, but its inexactitude is hidden. Its wildness lies in wait. Proverbs is about how the world is reasonable. It shows us the reasonableness of the world. But Ecclesiastes reminds us that while it is somewhat reasonable, it's not always reasonable. There is a kind of wildness lying in wait. Ecclesiastes is about that wildness, that illogicality of the world. Ecclesiastes reminds us you can't program your life like a computer. If you just punch the right buttons, you'll get the right result. You can't manipulate reality. Wisdom is not fundamentally about comprehension or control of the world. Certainly it's better to be wise than to be foolish. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes both show us that. But in the words of Gandalf to Frodo, even the wise cannot see all ends. Wisdom is wonderful, but wisdom can only take you so far. Even the wise cannot see all ends. That's really the message of Ecclesiastes. You could say that's the motto of the book. Wisdom is wonderful, but it will only get you so far. 
Even the wise cannot see all ends. Let's look at this text and see what's in front of us in the first two chapters. Verse 1, we find these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher there, it's actually in the Latin, it becomes ecclesiastic. That's how the uh, book gets its title. It's a word that describes one who gathers an assembly, one who convenes a meeting. Uh, one who calls the people to gather for the purpose of teaching them. And that's what Solomon is doing here. He's gathering together the people of Israel, the people of God, that he might impart his wisdom to them. Because obviously this is Solomon. He is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And of course, we know from 1 Kings that Solomon is the wisest man to ever live. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God says to Solomon, when he first becomes king, ask for anything and I will give it. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And of course, God was pleased with this. What does a king need more than wisdom? Uh, He knows to rule well, he will need wisdom, and so he asked God to give him wisdom. And this gift of wisdom served Solomon well, at least until he fell away later in life. Because God had given him wisdom, he became a man of fabulous power and wealth and reputation. 1 Kings 4 goes on to tell us how Solomon administered his kingdom in great wisdom. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs. He was both a philosopher and an artist. Not only that, but 1 Kings goes on to tell us he could describe all kinds of different plants and Animals. He could describe plant and animal life like no one else. He was a biologist. Solomon was an all-around stud. He was a true Renaissance man centuries before the Renaissance. He was, you might say, the most interesting man to have ever lived. Uh, He was a king. He was an author. He was an artist. He was a musician. He was a philosopher. He was a lover. He was a poet. He was a scientist. He was a builder. When he speaks, we need to listen. So what does he have to say? What does he tell us? We'll go on. Verse 2. Vapor of vapor, all is vapor. Now, you've got if you've got a uh, standard translation, it may read differently than that. It may say meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, or vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But most commentaries on Ecclesiastes, at least most modern commentaries, agree that is not the best rendering of the Hebrew. As best we can understand the Hebrew here, the word Solomon uses, it's not a real abstract term, like meaninglessness. It's really more of a concrete term. It describes a mist or a fog or a vapor or smoke. And so I'm going with vapor uh, as the translation here. And that's how Carl read the passage for us this morning. The, The point Solomon is making is not that all is meaningless. If so, the book itself would be meaningless. And what point would there be then in reading it? The point is the world is like vapor or fog. The world is like a vapor or a mist or a fog. Now, why would the most powerful and the wisest man on earth describe the world in this way as vapor? Well, it's because he knows better than anyone else that the world is not under our control. We can't manage it or sculpt it. Think about on a, on a foggy day where there is a kind of vapor hanging in the air. Can you push that vapor around? Can you push the mist around the fog and make it do what you want? No, of course not. The vapor is unmanageable. 
See, wisdom is not some kind of superpower that allows you to control or comprehend your life. Rather, wisdom recognizes that life is transient and fleeting and ephemeral and ungraspable and incomprehensible and uncontrollable. In James chapter 4, the apostle there really echoes the message of Ecclesiastes. He says, your life is a mist. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Your life is a mist. James 4 says, your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That is Solomon's point here. Now we might be tempted to say, well, that's true for non-Christians, but surely it's not true of Christians. Our lives are not vapor or mist, right? No, actually Solomon is saying this is true for all of us. Life is vaporous for everyone because we are creatures and even more than that because we are sinners. Life is vaporous. Let me go a little further with this. The Hebrew word for vapor in Ecclesiastes is ebel. In Hebrew it's ebel, which sounds a lot like the name Abel. It's actually very closely related. We can hear that in the Hebrew perhaps it's even more clear. But think about Abel for a moment in Genesis. He is Adam and Eve's secondborn, uh, their secondborn son, and he's faithful. Uh, he, his worship offering is accepted by God because he's faithful in how he comes before God. But then in a jealous rage, his brother Cain kills him. Cain, the first man that Eve was given by the Lord, the one who perhaps she thought was going to be the Savior, actually becomes a killer. Cain kills Abel. Abel's life was Ebel. It was a vapor. It was a mist. Uh, He was there one day and then gone the next. In a horrific, enigmatic tragedy. As far as we know, he was the first to die. The first taste of real physical death. And his life ends for no good reason. This was proof to Adam and Eve. They could not control their lives or their circumstances or their sons for that matter. Adam and Eve had tried to take control of the world when they seized the forbidden fruit, but it backfired on them opening up a Pandora's box of mysteries and tragedies and trials. And for them, certainly, this was one of the most tragic events of all. The death of their son at the hands of their other son. Abel's life was Ebel. And this is what Solomon is saying. All of our lives are Ebel. Vapor of vapor, all is vapor. Even that that language, vapor of vapor, it kind of sounds like Solomon is riffing off of the phrase holy of holies from the tabernacle and the temple. Just as the Holy of Holies is the most holy place, it's the supremely holy place. So Solomon is saying, the world is vapor of vapors. It is supremely vaporous. It's vaporous and there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, I think there's another phrase that Solomon uses in this book to explain what he means by Ebel, to explain what he means by vapor. It's a phrase that pops up again and again in the book. It's that phrase, shepherding the wind. Again, some translations will say grasping the wind or chasing the wind. It's best read as shepherding the wind. And so in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, all is vapor in shepherding the wind. It's a phrase that occurs again and again. It becomes a kind of refrain in the book. It actually happens seven times in the book. He says, all is vapor and shepherding the wind. For Solomon, in his wisdom, he makes this confession. Reality is like vapor, and it's also like the wind. 
You cannot grasp the vapor. You cannot comprehend or control it. And at the same time, reality is like the wind. You cannot shepherd it or direct it or catch it. And this is why for Solomon, as you see come out in these first two chapters of Ecclesiastes again and again, this is why the world is so vexing. This is why the world vexes us so much. This is why the world is so frustrating. This is why life can be so burdensome and so wearisome. Life slips through our fingers when we try to grasp it. Life slips through our minds when we try to understand it. We cannot comprehend the world. We cannot control it. Well, Solomon begins to unpack more of what he means when he says the world is vapor of vapors. He goes on to catalog ways in which the world is vaporous. He's going to investigate everything under heaven. Verse 3, he asks, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? This is really one of the key questions that drives the book. It's one of the questions that Solomon is seeking to, to answer. What's the profit or what's the gain in all of man's tasks, all of man's labors? Does he ever gain any leverage over the world? What control does a man ever get over his own life? What profit does man's labor yield? Is there a surplus from his labor that allows him to have some kind of control over life? Life can be brutal and unfair. It is traumatic and enigmatic. The world's a crooked place. Can man ever straighten it out? Can man ever solve life's riddles? Can man ever gain any advantage over the world in the game of life? Can man win at the game of life? That's really what Solomon is asking in verse 3. And you start to see his answer unpacked in verses 4 through 11 as he examines the cycles of nature and the world of history. And he finds, no, man can't win. Man never gets any leverage over the world. He never gets any control over his own life. And so verse 4, one generation comes and another goes. One generation comes on the scene of history and dies out as another one arises and they die out and another one takes their place. We're all brought into this world by forces outside of our control and we'll be taken out of this world in the same way. We're here today, gone tomorrow. It was true of Abel. It's true of all of us. We're all a vapor. We're all a mist. And once we're dead, we're quickly forgotten because that's how it always is. The dead are always quickly forgotten. Most of us probably couldn't name, we probably couldn't give the names of our great-great-grandparents. And that's just a few generations ago. It's very likely that you will be forgotten in the same way by your descendants just a few generations from now. One generation comes and then it goes. Another one takes its place. It's just an endless cycle, a whirl. Solomon says the sun rises and sets. There's an east-west movement here. He says the wind blows to the north and circles, the wind blows to the south and circles back to the north. Here it's a north-south movement. So you have these different movements, east and west, north and south. Solomon is describing cycles in the created order, cycles that man can do nothing about. Cycles man can never control. Uh, We look at the same sun and we feel the same breezes as Adam. But these cycles all wash us away and overwhelm us. Anything we build is like a sandcastle on the beach that's simply going to be washed away. We have no power over creation, no power over history. Picture yourself commanding the sun 
and telling it to stop in its circuit. Or picture yourself commanding the jet stream. Can you command the jet stream and tell the winds to blow in a different direction? No, you can't. Solomon is saying, that's how much control you have over your life, which is to say none. You can't control your own life any more than you can control the sun or the wind. Solomon goes on to speak of the rivers and the sea, the currents of water as they circle around, and the mystery of how water flows into the ocean, but the ocean never seems to fill up. Again, his point is we have no control over these cycles, these patterns. Think of King Canute who went out to the seashore in front of all of his people and commanded the tides to stop rising to show, no, we have no power over the sea, no power over the creation. When Canute commanded the tides to stop, and of course they didn't, that's how much control you have over your life. That's how much power you have over the world, which is, again, to say none. Solomon says, he goes on to say, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. There's something insatiable about our desires, something unquenchable about our desires. The eye is not satisfied with what it sees. You can sit in front of the TV and you can have 200 channels and you can complain that there's nothing to watch. And the sad thing is, you're right. There's not anything to watch. There's nothing to satisfy. Our appetites are insatiable. And this is why life wears us down. We just can't be satisfied with anything that's there. So Solomon describes all these cycles. And his point, of course, is that eventually we get crushed by them in death. You can't stop them. You can't interrupt them. You can't control them. No matter what you do, man's frantic activity and his labors change nothing. These cycles overrun us in the end. And so Solomon goes on, verses 9 to 11, he says, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, Solomon here is not making a point about human technology. Certainly, we have continual innovation. We continually develop new technologies. Solomon would have known that. He would have been familiar with that. Our technology might give us the illusion of some power over the world, but it doesn't really change things, not fundamentally. And that is Solomon's point. It doesn't matter what technology we develop. We have the same problems as before. So we developed the Internet. Does anybody think that that really solves anything? Has the Internet fixed human life? Has the Internet solved the deepest problems of human existence? Solomon would look at the Internet and say, you know, really what that is, is just a way to transfer information. And it's great you can do it so quickly. It's it's great you have so much information available to you. But people have been transferring information from the dawn of time. It's really not anything new. You could show Solomon a car or an airplane, and you might say, well, you can get places a whole lot faster than I could. But it's still just about transportation. It's about moving from A to B. And people have been doing that from the very dawn of time, from the very beginning of history. It hasn't fundamentally changed the parameters of human existence. The cycles of history continue. The cycles of nature continue. And those cycles grind us up. They wear us out. Even those little cycles we have in our daily lives. You do the dishes... What happens? They get dirty again. You have to do the dishes again. It happens again and again. You cut the grass, what happens? It grows again. You have to cut it again. We're trapped in these cycles, it seems. And it seems that we never really get anywhere. We never get any leverage. There's no remembrance of former things. Our lives are vaporous. Well, Solomon continues. 
He's examined the cycles of history, the cycles of nature. Now he's going to go on a quest exploring and probing and investigating different areas of human culture and human society. Is there some area of human life, some compartment of human existence that will provide the key to all things, that will give man leverage, that will give man gain? that will give man some kind of power over the world. Solomon is looking for a solid place to stand. And what does he find? Well, I can tell you. He finds all ground is sinking sand. Solomon starts off with wisdom, and he'll return to wisdom at the end of this section. But he says he's searched for wisdom. And what has he found out about wisdom? Even in all his wisdom, Solomon sees life as inscrutable, as full of burdens. What has Solomon's wisdom taught him? Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, what has his wisdom taught him? Solomon knows he has great wisdom, and he confesses that here. But he says actually his wisdom has brought him sorrow. His knowledge has brought him sorrow. This goes all the way back to Adam who grasped for that fruit, the forbidden fruit, in a quest for new knowledge. And we know the misery that brought. Well, Solomon in verse 18 says, knowledge can bring grief. It can bring misery and hardship. And we know how this is as we leave behind the naivete of childhood and as we become wise, we realize just how hard-edged, how hard life can be, how difficult it can be, how life can have sharp edges that cut us and bruise us. Wisdom often leaves us with more questions than answers. Because each answer we get leads to a new set of questions. We get an answer, we have to question that answer, and it just continues. Wisdom doesn't give us a theory of everything. It never provides an explanation that fully satisfies us. The world remains vaporous. Human wisdom never really gets to the bottom of things. Everything you learn reveals just how much you don't know. The more you know, the more you realize how little you know. More knowledge just means more questions. It doesn't satisfy your quest or your thirst. It doesn't quench your desire for understanding, for comprehension. Wisdom does not teach you how to master or control the world or how to control your life. Again, wisdom does not give you a set of techniques that you can use to guarantee yourself certain outcomes in your life. Having wisdom does not mean that your life will always be orderly or predictable. Again, even the wise cannot see all ends. Even the wise cannot shepherd the wind. Not even the wise can escape the vaporous nature of life. If you try to control your life, if you try to control the world, you will be frustrated. You will discover that trying to figure life out is like chasing the wind. So Solomon says, wisdom is not the answer. That's the first stop in Solomon's quest. At the start of chapter 2, he continues this investigation. He looks at pleasure. What about laughter and pleasure? These are certainly good. You know, we have that saying from from C.S. Lewis, God must like matter because he invented it. Well, God must like pleasure. He invented that too. But is pleasure really the key to life? Can laughter give man leverage over the world? No. Solomon discovers, no, because the laughter never laughs, never lasts. The laughter never endures. Things that were once funny, eventually the, 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 funny, the funniness of them wears off. Even laughter is vaporous. Laughter's good. Laughter's a wonderful thing to have in your life. Laughter is a kind of medicine even. 
But there's no joke that can keep you laughing forever. Humor is a nice diversion. You need to have humor in your life. But it's not the key to all things. It doesn't give you that solid place to stand. It doesn't give you leverage over the world. Solomon tries out wine, one of humanity's greatest civilizational accomplishments, one of man's greatest cultural achievements is uh, fermenting grapes into wine. Could wine hold the meaning to life? Can you find the meaning of life in the bottom of a glass? Well, again, wine is good. It's one of the good gifts of God, but it's not the key to solving life's riddles. You may think momentarily it is, but it's not. You can use wine in feasting and in festivity to celebrate life. Uh, Wine can be a kind of diversion. It can be used as a kind of painkiller. But it's not the answer. It does not give man leverage over his life or leverage over the world. So Solomon continues in his quest. He considers his great building projects beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2. And here he's probably describing the temple that he built, the magnificent structure that he built for a house As a house for God, he could be describing his own palace. It's like Solomon built a new Eden with gardens and vineyards and orchards and precious metals and pools. He is surrounded by all of this architectural beauty. And to that architectural beauty, he adds acoustical beauty as well. Verse 8 tells us he had singers with musical instruments, and so he enjoyed this delightful music. His life was filled with wine, women, and song. He became great in Jerusalem. But what did he find? Did his sense of achievement, his architectural achievements, or did his aesthetic experiences bring leverage? Did they give him gain? He confesses he enjoyed all the fruits of his labors in verse 10. But he realizes, as he says in verse 11, that all of this was vapor and grasping for the wind. Life is still vaporous, even with these great achievements and these great experiences of beauty. Life is still a vapor for Solomon. All of his labors and quests were a mere mist. None of them gave Solomon gain or leverage in any ultimate sense. And so Solomon found his life burdensome and wearisome. Solomon knew. He knew from his own experience, from his own wisdom, there are problems that just can't be fixed in this life. Not every question is going to be answered. Not every tragedy has an explanation. Not every problem has a solution within our reach. Solomon is bumping up against the very limits of human wisdom. And in doing so, Solomon is giving us a reality check. That's really what Ecclesiastes is. It's one big reality check because Solomon is telling it like it is. He's shooting straight with us, saying this is the way the world actually is. Now in verses 12 to 16, Solomon goes on to reconsider wisdom. And here he makes a concession. He concedes that wisdom is better than folly. There is some gain, some profit to be had in wisdom. And when he speaks here of the advantages of wisdom, you can really plug Proverbs into that. That's the whole theme of Proverbs, the advantages of wisdom. The benefits of wisdom. But what does Solomon find in the end? He finds the same fate comes upon the wise man as the fool. The wise man's wisdom does not allow him to outsmart death. His wisdom does not give him a way of cheating death. The wise man and the fool experience the same fate, and that fate, of course, is death. Wisdom is good, but it cannot 
keep you from suffering death in the end. It's good, but it's good for only so long. It can't overcome death. And so in the end, what, what good is your wisdom, really, if you're still going to die? If you're going to be forgotten in the same way the fool is forgotten? If you, as a wise man and the fool, are going to lie right next to each other in the graveyard, in the cemetery, what good is your wisdom? If the wise man and the fool both die, how can we say wisdom really brings advantage? And so Solomon says, because death wins, because death defeats the wise man just as much as the fool He says, I hated life. The work done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vapor and shepherding the wind. I hated my labor because I must leave it to one who comes after me. And who knows if he will be wise or foolish. And of course, we do know from the history of the kings of Israel that many, indeed most of the kings who came after Solomon were very foolish and they squandered what he had built up. They squandered the inheritance that he had built up for them. Solomon is facing something we all must face. If you can't control things during your life, you're certainly not going to control them after you die. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what will happen to whatever you leave behind. You don't know how your inheritance is going to be used. You don't know how your legacy is going to be received after you're gone. You have no control over your life and you certainly don't have any control after you die. It's all out of your hands. It's a vapor. It's a mist. You can't grab hold of it and steer it the way you want it to go. Now, it might seem that all of this would require a pessimistic and indeed hopeless conclusion. But actually, as Solomon comes to summarize, and this is really the first of several concluding statements or or summarizing statements in the book of Ecclesiastes before you come to the final end in chapter 12. But Solomon here is going to draw some some tentative and provisional conclusions, which he will do several times along the way. You might think everything he has said so far would require a pessimistic and hopeless conclusion, but actually Solomon draws the opposite kind of conclusion. Instead of despairing, Solomon says to rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 24, nothing is better than for a man to eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also is from the hand of God. He goes on, he says, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. And he actually even says those things that the wicked store up for themselves actually eventually flow to those who are good in God's sight. The wicked are just storing up an inheritance for the righteous. Now, how can Solomon say all of this? Fundamentally, how can Solomon say God gives joy in the midst of the vapor? If everything is vaporous, then how can we have any joy? Well, Solomon shows us God's gifts here cannot be seized. They can only be received. We have to learn to live receptive lives. God's gifts are not under our control, so we must live a receptive life, a life of thanksgiving. It all comes from God. Certainly that's there. But we still have to ask, how can Solomon counsel a life of festivity in the midst of the vaporousness of life? How can we rejoice and celebrate when everything around us is missed? Where does this joy really come from? How can there be joy in the midst of the vapor? If it's impossible to shepherd the wind, how can Solomon say this? The conclusion doesn't seem to follow the premises. Solomon has painted this this very burdensome picture of life at the end of it he says rejoice 
Solomon does not let what he can't control destroy what he can enjoy. And that's a lesson for us. Don't let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy. No, life cannot be mastered, but it can be enjoyed. Life cannot be controlled or comprehended, but it can be celebrated. Most of your problems in life stem from wanting to control your life. And Solomon says, if you will relinquish control, if you will give yourself up to God, then you can really start to enjoy what God has for you. You don't know what God's doing in the world. God's ways are unsearchable. They're past finding out. You don't know what God has up his sleeve. You know what tricks God has up his sleeve, what God is doing. You cannot comprehend or control the world because to comprehend or control the world would be to comprehend or control God. And you can't do that. And you need to stop trying to do that. But what you can do, what you must do, is trust God. Without using the language of faith, what Solomon has described is the life of faith. What it means to give yourself up to God, to entrust yourself to God. In the middle of this beautiful and broken life, all you can do is trust God. Trust God to do what your wisdom can't do. And that is to work it all out. You don't have to figure it all out because God has it figured out. You don't have to control everything because God's in control. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon keeps bumping up against the limits of of wisdom, the limits of human wisdom. He's showing us the limits of wisdom. But the limits of wisdom show us the need of faith. If wisdom does not bring comprehension and control, then what can you do? The only thing you can do is trust God. If wisdom did bring comprehension and control, I suppose you wouldn't need faith. Your wisdom would be enough, but it's not like that. What Solomon is showing is that life's riddles and mysteries and vexations are designed by God to lead us to himself. God has designed the world so it is full of unanswered and unanswerable questions. So it is full of difficulty and frustration and wearisome toil. So it is full of burdens. And he has done all of this to show us our utter dependence upon him. Life under the sun is perplexing. It is frustrating. Life can be wearisome and burdensome. But the toils of this life serve a purpose. They drive us to dependence. They drive us to God. So I bet you came to church today with a lot of questions. All of us have all kinds of questions about life. Okay, Why that happen, Lord? Why me? Why him? Why her? Why any of us? Why do these things happen? Solomon is saying, push through your questions. And what you will find is not answers, but rather God himself. There is something better than an answer to your questions. There's God. That's what you really want. Because those answers wouldn't really satisfy you. They would just lead to more questions. You don't need answers to your questions. What you need is God. Our lives are marked by instability and constant change. All around us, we endure political upheaval, political corruption, unstable job situations, broken bones, leaky faucets, missed deadlines, unpaid bills. And of course, there's death looming over all of us. 
It does not seem there's any solid place to stand in this world. Where are you going to find something solid, something stable, something you can stake your life to? Where are you going to find an anchor? The message of Ecclesiastes is simple. It's something like this. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is Solomon's message. Your money, it's sinking sand. Your health, it's sinking sand. Your looks, oh, they're definitely sinking sand. Even your wisdom is sinking sand. Everything in your life, everything you might build your life upon is sinking sand. You know, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you think, oh, if only Solomon had had this, or only Solomon had had that, you're still thinking there's something in the creation where we could take our stand where it would be stable and secure. And there's not. There is not. Everything in this world, everything in your life is sinking sand. And so where are you going to take your stand? You've got to take your stand on Christ. He alone is your solid rock. We can't comprehend life. God comprehends all. We can't control the world. God controls everything. We cannot shepherd the wind. God has given us a good shepherd. His own Son, who shepherds the wind, who shepherds our lives, who rules over all, who gave His life for us. A good shepherd who can do what we can't. God has constructed the world in such a way that we must live by faith. Otherwise, life is just a living death. God has made life an unsolvable puzzle. God has made life a riddle you can't solve. Precisely so, you will look to Him and depend on Him and trust in Him. God uses the very crookedness of life to show you how straight He is. And how much you need Him. God uses the crookedness of life and the inscrutable nature of the world to break us out of our pride and our passion for control. To break us out of our sense of self-dependence and self-sufficiency so we will fear Him and so we will trust Him. That's the game of life. And the only way to win this life is to give up on yourself and to entrust yourself to God. Your wisdom and your wealth and your very life are all fleeting. That is the nature of life under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. But there is one who has come from beyond the sun. The true son of David, the greater Solomon, who not only has wisdom, but who is God's very wisdom incarnate in human form. Who is not just a king under heaven, but a king over heaven. Who is not just king in Jerusalem, but a king in heaven. He is the king who can straighten out what is crooked, who can break the curse, who can solve the riddle, who can put together the pieces of the puzzle. He is the good shepherd who can shepherd the wind. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He did something new, the one thing that has been done in history under the sun that breaks the cycle, that breaks the world of death. The one new thing, the only new thing that's ever been done under the sun, He rose from the dead. And that is why Christ is your solid rock. You know, 
I don't know what the future holds for any of you. Maybe you'll stay healthy for years and years to come, or maybe you'll get a terminal cancer in the next six months. Maybe you'll get that job promotion. Maybe you won't. Maybe your investments will make you rich. Maybe they'll all crash. Maybe you'll get married. Maybe you're going to be single forever. I don't know. I don't know what is in store for you. I don't know what is in store for me. I don't know what tricks God might have up His sleeve. You can't shepherd the wind that is your life. I can't shepherd the wind that is my life. None of us can sculpt the vapor, but you know what? It doesn't matter. In Christ, you have a solid place to stand. God has not given you an answer to your questions. God has given you something better. He's given you Himself. If there is a key to life, this is it. The key to life is trust God. Live by faith. In His wisdom, Jesus did something not even Solomon could have imagined. In His wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, He outsmarted death. In His dying on the cross, the sinless one for sinners, He cheated death. He defeated death. He overcame death. Because this is not just a human wisdom, it's a divine wisdom. No, you don't have a seat in the control tower. You don't have a a seat in that air traffic control tower where you get a bird's eye view of everything. No, actually, you're out there flying one of the airplanes. And you're actually flying a plane surrounded by a thick fog. You're flying your plane in the midst of a thick vapor and you can't see three foot, three feet in front of your plane. And so what are you going to do? All you can do is keep listening to that voice coming to you from the tower. The one who is in the tower directing the traffic. The one who does see it all. The one who knows it all. That voice coming to you, it's Christ Himself. And if you don't want to crash your plane, you need to listen to Him. When everything is vapor, all you can do is trust God. When everything is sinking sand, all you can do is take your stand upon the rock that is Christ. God alone has the key to reality. And He doesn't make copies and hand them out. You don't have the key to life. You don't hold life's key in your hand. You don't have it in your back pocket. Your life is going to be filled with mystery and with tragedy, with things you can't explain and things you can't control. All you can do is trust God. To do anything else, to try to shepherd the wind, is to try to do God's job for Him. And you're not not cut out for it. I don't care how good your resume is. You're not fit for God's job. Even the wise cannot see all ends. But we do see Jesus. And that's enough, isn't it? Quit trying to control your life and trust God. Quit trying to understand life and trust God. Quit trying to play God and trust God. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. This is what Solomon wants us to see. Well, tomorrow is Monday. It'll be the start of another work week, another trip on the merry-go-round. It's the next day in your vaporous little life. What are you going to do? What would Solomon tell you to do? I think Solomon would say, trust God. Trust God as you live the life God gives to you. Laugh like you've never lost. Smile like you've never cried. Fight like you've never been beaten. 
Love like you've never been hurt. Live like there's no tomorrow. Rejoice like you have everything you could ever possibly want. Because in Christ you do. Your life is vapor. Your life is a sinking sand. Look to Christ. Take your stand on Him. Christ alone is your solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's give Him thanks together. Father, we do thank You that in the midst of the vapor, You have given us Christ. In the midst of all of this sinking sand, You have given us a solid place to stand. The rock that is Christ. May we trust Him. May we entrust ourselves to Him. May we live the abundant life He gives us to. A life that is full of joy because we've recognized we can't control life. We can't comprehend life. We're simply to live the life You give to us each day, giving You thanks, putting our hope in You, trusting in You to work all things out, to do what we can't do in our wisdom. May we trust in Your wisdom. May we trust in the wisdom of the cross. Father, this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.